Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville. 103.7 and streaming online wpvmfm.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico thank you Walter Parks for our theme song walterparks.com for more on Walter's music thank you Devine Dial for managing WPVMFM and Robin Collier thank you for managing KCEI Cultural Energy Radio in Taos, New Mexico if you'd like to reach me Nave at James Nave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to start. Today, I have Luke Hankins on. He is an editor, and he also has a publishing concern, Orizon Books. Orizon means prayer. I met Luke years ago, and I recently went to one of his fundraisers for his publishing company, and he just had a terrific evening planned for us, and we all enjoyed great poetry, connecting with new and old friends. Plus, Luke had all of his Orizon books scattered about the room, and he asked everybody in the room to please take them as gifts. And then afterwards, I spoke with Luke a bit, and I realized he would be a perfect candidate for Twice Five Miles Radio. So I asked Luke to be on the show. Luke, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks so much, Nave. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have reconnected with you at the at the event and to be here with you today. So in the book that you gave me, this little book, The Vision and Mission of Horizon Books, you talk about beauty. And the poet Charles Wright said, all beauty begins with disappearance, the bitten edges of things the gradual sliding away into tissue and memory, the uncertainty and dazzling impermanence of days we beg our meanings from, and their frayed loveliness. All beauty begins with disappearance. So I would like for you just to start talking about your calling to publish all these great poetry books that you do, and tell us how you allow beauty to inform the work you do as a poet, as a publisher, and just as a regular fellow on the street. Beauty is a very big subject matter, and perhaps the biggest when it, when it comes to the arts uh, and poetry and, and literature. What you read from Charles Wright reminds me a little bit of what Whitman said, death is the mother of beauty. And I think what they're getting at, and so many poets have been trying to get at in various ways for so long, is that the main reason that we are so deeply interested in and so and need on a profound level beauty is because we're mortal and the world we live in is always in flux and we change and you know entropy is is one of the laws of the universe and things dissipate and you know there's rebirth of course but we all witness death and we experience it ourselves in light of that beauty becomes even more heightened. Our understanding of our mortality can heighten our experience of beauty because we know it won't last forever or our experience of it can't last forever. And so I think what artists and poets do is they try to record it. They try to make something permanent out of impermanence. 
that's one of the first things that drew me to poetry when in in high school was reading poems by poets long dead they were like these little ships that sailed across the centuries long after the poets had passed away and what they said had a deep impact on me in a very different time and very different place they recorded and created something beautiful and that lasted it had a type of immortality not true immortality none of us has true immortality nothing we make has true immortality but it can outlast even our own lifetimes i just had lunch with a fellow and he was telling me how difficult it was for him to understand poetry and he wanted me to create a book or a, a spoken word recording explaining the poems that I have in my new book, 100 Days Poems After Cancer. These are really narrative poems. And I said to this fellow, well, poets don't really feel the need to explain the poems because the poems have a life and they have a way of informing somebody over a long period of time. Mm. It's not about understanding the poem out of the gate, like I understand directions down to the corner store. Right. It's about dwelling in a relationship with energy. Could you reflect on that a bit? I think I was at least fairly close to how I feel about it. How do you feel about that idea? Yeah, I really like the way that you expressed that. I think in our society, we're so used to reading for pragmatic reasons and reading just to acquire information that sometimes people are a little baffled when they come to a poem or even a story or, or in a museum and looking at a painting and they don't detect a clear bit of information that's being conveyed by the piece. The way you described what poetry does is just you've described it as experiential and interactive. And I think that's exactly right. Artists ideally create an experience for the reader, for the viewer, for the listener. And that experience means in many multiple different ways. It doesn't have one set meaning. And to reduce it to that would be to ask it to stop being art and would be to ask it to be a textbook or an anecdote that doesn't have the multiplicities of meanings and layers that the best poems do. So I really like the way that you responded to that person and hopefully encouraged them to think about a relationship with the poem and over a longer period of time and over one, more than one reading. So I think that was really well stated and I agree with it. I encouraged him to choose one poem, memorize it, spend six months with it, even a short piece. And after after having memorized it and recited it 300 times to himself, <laughs> I said, let's come back and have another conversation about how well you understand or don't understand the poem that mm. you've been spending six months with. I think that's a good point. How did he respond to that? He paused for a moment and wasn't quite sure exactly what to do because it had never occurred to him to memorize a poem. That's also a good point. It's not that we can't or shouldn't discuss what poems mean. They do mean things, and they can mean different things to different readers. There are, of course, objective features of a poem. There are specific images, specific 
characters, specific events, um, specific sounds. There's always subjectivity involved in art as well, and things impact people in different ways. So discussing what a poem means to me with you and, and what it means to you, we can expand each other's notion of what the poem means and the different ways that it means from the musical qualities of the poem to the more literal events and message of the poem. You've traveled in the world of letters for a long time. You now have a publishing company with, I don't know how many books you've published. Uh, almost you 50 now. Yeah. Almost 50 books. You started your journey into the world of poetry, I understand, in high school. Can you give us a story of your journey? How did that unfold? How did you learn enough to be able to not only have a great accomplishment as a poet, also as a publisher? It certainly started with the love of poetry. The experience I described a few minutes ago about being deeply impacted by poems from the past. And that led me to want to discover poems from the present as well, and also to write my own poems. And that was the thing. I, you know, I thought if I can do for just one person what John Donne or Emily Dickinson poem is doing for me, if I can do that for one person now or in the future, then it's all worth it. That became my personal calling. And so I pursued poetry very passionately from mm -hmm. high school on into college. I think I was a sophomore in college when I discovered you could go to graduate school for poetry. And I was so excited. So I applied to a ton of different programs my senior year. And thankfully, I, I ended up in a lovely place with some lovely professors and, and fellow writers at Indiana University, among them Ross Gay, who, who was at the event you attended. And so I continued my study there. During that time in college, I started working with Keith Flynn at Asheville Poetry Review. And I began as an intern and then became a staff member. And so that was my entree into the editorial and publishing side of things. And I discovered that I really loved curating work, selecting what to publish, I also loved working with authors on edits and loved championing work that I really was impacted by and being able to share it with a wider audience. That was a really great feeling. And that feeling has remained with me. That has always been a driving force in what I do as an editor and as a publisher. And so when I founded the press, Orison Books published our first books in 2016. Part, part of what I thought as my mission in doing that was to publish work in perhaps a more durable form than a literary magazine. Literary magazines, they're super important. I love literary magazines. They're an important part of the literary ecosystem. But there is, you know, we were talking about temporality and ephemerality earlier. There's something sort of inherently ephemeral about a periodical. Most people don't keep literary magazines on their shelves unless they have something in it, right? They may flip through it, read bits and pieces, usually don't read them cover to cover. Uh, at least not many people I know do that. And then you probably recycle or hand them over to someone else. But books are different. We don't save every book, but books live on our shelves for our whole lives sometimes because we fall in love with them. And I don't know, maybe it's something about having that single voice cover to cover that is really causes us to treasure them in a different way. Uh, whatever the reason, 
our relationship with single author books is very different than it is with magazines. And so I'm really excited at the prospect of publishing books by authors I love and the prospect of those books finding a treasured home somewhere on people's bookshelves, possibly for a lifetime. When you were working with Asheville Poetry Review and Keith Flynn, Mm -hmm. you got your inspiration there to do Orzon Books. What was so magnetic Mm -hmm. about Asheville Poetry Review? You know, one of the things that was amazing to me, at this time, we were getting envelopes mailed to the P.O. Box. Most things are done digitally these days, but these submissions would come in from all over the country, even all over the world. And there are these envelopes full of poems coming to Asheville Poetry Review from all over. That was a fascinating thing to me. It was exciting. You never knew what you were going to discover when you opened the envelopes. (laughs) The bulk of them, stuff that we would not publish, of course, and some really wild stuff. You would get glamour shots and sequins and who knows what. Some really strange things, some really funny things. But every once in a while, you would stumble on something that was really amazing. It's like a treasure hunt. So that was fascinating. So for people listening, could you give us a history of Asheville Poetry Review? And after that, I'm going to ask you a few questions about your work as a publisher. Sure. Uh, Well, Keith, has been a mainstay in the literary community in Asheville and Western North Carolina area for decades. He founded the review in 1994, I believe it was. And first couple issues, he was publishing mostly local and regional authors, but very quickly expanded to a national magazine in terms of who was published and where it was distributed and you know which bookstores carried it. And even internationally, there are bookstores in Europe who carry Asheville Poetry Review to this day. Was He's always been the heart and soul of Asheville Poetry Review, the one who's kept it going, and it's his vision, and I, I really applaud what he's done. It's very difficult to keep a print magazine going for decades like he has. Nave, I'm sure you're aware of this. So many magazines over the past decade plus have gone entirely digital just for practical reasons, for uh, financial reasons. And it's a real labor of love for Keith to have kept the magazine in print, and he wouldn't want to do it any other way. Um, There's something special about a physical book. I feel the same. It's always been Keith's special project. He's a remarkable editor and was such a mentor to me and still is in terms of the role of an editor, the ways an editor can not only select work, with rigorous criteria, but also work with authors to really make the poems the best they can possibly be. In the work you do now, how do you choose people to publish? What kind of measure do you have? And I'm asking this because a lot of people who listen to this show write and they're looking for ways to publish. So could you reflect a bit on what you feel is important for a poet to create in order to be published? And and how important is it to be published as a writer? Let me start with how I and how my co-editors select what we publish. One thing to keep in mind is that we, as an organization, have a unique mission. To some extent, we are always thinking how good, how strong a fit is this work for our mission. In short form, our mission is that we publish exceptional literary work that engages the life of the spirit 
from a broad and inclusive range of perspectives. So we publish authors from all sorts of backgrounds and identities and affiliations and non-affiliations, and we interpret spirit and spiritual very broadly and very openly. We have authors from all sorts of traditions, from Islam to Sikhism to Christianity to Buddhism to Judaism and authors from no affiliation. We're interested in work that engages with the big questions of existence, what it means to be human and lead a meaningful life and experiences of transcendence. We are constantly finding work that engages those things in new ways. That's really so exciting for me. On equal footing with that mission and that focus in terms of the content, is our insistence on literary quality. There is always subjectivity involved and taste. Just because I love a poem and you don't like it doesn't mean that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. We may have different tastes and that's okay. So there's always going to be an element of taste involved. That being said, I do think that in any art form, there is craft involved. And over years and decades of, of working on one's craft, experiencing art in that genre, experiencing poetry, reading it, thinking deeply about it, reading widely both the work of the past and of the present. It is possible for us to develop a sharper eye for literary quality. When you have a large body of work that you're comparing, in a sense, what you're reading to, you have a large context in which to see the work. Sometimes I run into writers who say, oh, I don't really read much poetry. I just write it. That always seems like just an unwise approach to any art form. I mean, if you were a painter, would you never look at other people's paintings? If you're a jazz musician, do you never listen to other jazz musicians? Of course you do, because it's a community of the living and the dead. Your art fits into a timeline a continuity of work. The best editors are the ones who bring that historical mindset to the art form. The best curators of art galleries do that. Uh, the best curators of music do that. I want to follow those thoughts with a question about performance. Asheville has a deep tradition of performance. What is your view of speaking the words aloud? I think there are different types of performers. I think there are different types of readers of their poems or their work, their fiction, their whatever it is on the stage. Whatever type you are, though, I think it needs to be refined and you need, it needs to be done thoughtfully. So there are performers who are more dramatic, like, say, Keith Flynn, uh, who combines singing powerful blues riffs and spirituals and other things with reading his poems. He's a dynamic performer with a lot of range. He can get very loud and very quiet on the stage. There are other performers who are less dynamic, but also at the same time seem fully engaged and fully present with the room. I think that's the most important thing, to feel like you're present with the room. I don't think you, it has to all be fireworks when you're on stage. And that can, I think maybe some people, when they say, no, I don't like getting on stage, I don't like performing, they think that the crowd is always expecting something really over the top. And I don't think that's true at all. That may not be your thing, and it doesn't need to be your thing. It's certainly not my thing. But I feel like I've become a much better reader of my poems on the stage over the years, partially just by doing it over and over, also by listening to other people read their poems and thinking both about what they're doing well and what I would do differently. <laughs> thinking about what suits your particular poems best. 
tailor, you know, I think people should tailor their delivery to the content and the style of their own poems. So those are just a few thoughts. I don't think of myself as a performer, but when I am at the microphone, I want it to be engaging. When people ask me how I define performance, I say, if you have one person in front of you and that person is listening to you present something orally, then that's a performance. And if you're not doing that and you have nobody in front of you and maybe you're presenting it in your room alone, that could be considered a performance as well. It would be, in my mind, a half of performance. Okay. In yeah. order to perform, it requires at least two people mm. because the performance is a communication. I think in some ways, the idea of performing a poem could be also revised to say that I'm communicating my poem aloud to you. And in that communication requires I at least perform with my vocal cords, takes away the pressure of having to swing from the rafters. I have seen poets go into high rafter swinging with all sorts of dramatic stuff, and I am bored stiff. I'm like, yeah. God, come on. I just, you know, so what? I don't need any more roaring lines under the circus tent here. Just get down sure. to business and tell me what you have to say. Conversely, I've seen poets like Nicole Brown, who does not roar from the stage. Right. When Nicole gets in her groove, to me, that's an exceptional communication. Yeah, absolutely. Another poet that I've heard read many times, not so much lately, but early on when he was starting out, is Ocean Vuong. He whispers almost. Yeah, he's a very, very quiet. And the room is just completely still. And it's almost like he's inviting us to be part of his breath. And then, of course, the great Ross Gay, who was there at your fundraiser. Ross has this terrific sense of humor. Absolutely. And a sense of informality that really welcomes the, the audience, I think. You don't get the sense that he views himself as being up on a pedestal, even though he deserves to be on one <laughs> because he's such an amazing writer and an amazing person. There's an intimacy to that informality in his delivery, and it's perfect for his work. And the humor comes in and his face lights up. It's wonderful. It's almost like when he was reading the other night at your venue, I thought he was going to say, well, I don't have much time because I left my half and half in the car and I have to hurry home and put it in the refrigerator so I can have coffee tomorrow. Sorry. You know, <laughs> something like that. It's just like that offbeat, but it was terrific. So the casualness is terrific. Nicole is casual and yet she's formal. Uh, Ocean Vong is easy and casual in his ease. Casualness can be taken too far, of course, if it becomes thoughtless. Or if you get the sense that the reader isn't really even engaged or doesn't really care much about what they're reading, performers who give off that air of casualness have to balance that with an air of being deeply invested in what they're reading and what they're communicating. Quite right. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, it's an interesting conversation about performance and getting the work on the page and then presenting it to the world. I'd like for you to talk a bit about design. I saw all of the books that you have to offer the world, some terrific, beautiful book cover designs. How does that happen? And what is your view of design in respect to putting a book together? As I mentioned, I love physical books. I love being in rooms where there are books. I love holding books in my hand. I love 
dog-earing pages and marking up pages. I love a book as a physical object. It becomes an artifact of my engagement with the poetry, with the fiction, with whatever it is that I return to over time. And the way books feel in the hand and the way they look is very, very important, I think, and can help elevate or give an appropriate container for the content, the very least not work against it. I think bad book design, always the problem comes down to the design, the visual working against the content in some way. Each book is different. We approach the design for each book, very much hoping to tailor the appearance of the book to the content. I have a strong hand in the design. I oversee the design. I don't have the technical ability to do the design myself, working with the software and all that. So I do work with a freelance designer. It's a bit of a collaboration. And the author is part of that collaboration as well, most of the time. I always have a conversation about the book design with the author. And frequently, the author has an idea of uh, work of art or photo or just a general concept for the cover. And I always take that into consideration. Sometimes we use the exact artwork the author suggested. Sometimes we don't, but it is a collaborative process. And we go through at least several different versions, sometimes a dozen versions or more of a cover before it's finalized. Putting a book together requires a great deal of effort on many different levels. A lot of people self-publish. I've done that before. I like the idea of putting my books together and self-publishing. A lot of people come to me because I do some book coaching, manuscript mm -hmm. coaching, developmental coaching for people to help them get through the whole process. And people misunderstand of what is required, not only with the physical effort and the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual effort, but the financial mm -hmm. effort. Can you give people listening an idea of the steps that are required and reflect a bit on the cost of what it takes to get something to the end of the line. The designer has to be paid. The interior right. designer has to be paid. You have to organize all of this, the editing, et cetera. What are those steps? And reflect on that to help people maybe understand how they could go about doing it themselves. Right. So if you are self-publishing and you want to do it well, then there is going to be a significant expense involved. If you're going the traditional publishing route, well, you have an editor built in, you have a designer built in, you might have a marketing team or some marketing assistance built in, and you're not paying for any of those things with traditional publishing, right? The publisher is providing those services, paying for those services. Distribution is another thing. But if you're self-publishing and you want it to be on a professional level, you will want the contents to be edited professionally, unless you happen to have a good friend who just volunteers to do it for you. That, that will cost you money. If you want the design, unless you happen to be a graphic designer to be done professionally, that will cost you money. Of course, the actual printing of the book, print, print on demand makes that cost very minimal these days if you want to go the print on demand route. That being said, frankly, the print quality and the quality of the paper is much lower with print on demand. It's much better than it used to be, of course. It's grown by leaps and bounds. And I'm not saying don't do print on demand, but it's not going to feel the same. The ink is not going to look the same if you do more traditional offset print run or even a digital print run at a larger quantity. 
all those things factor in. Then are you going to do promotion and marketing? Are you going to send out review copies that cost money? Are you going to set up events for yourself? Are you going to travel? All those things are, are, are expenses. So depending on what type of book, length of the book, it's definitely going to involve several thousand dollars easily. I know I just finished working with a client. Her name is Lynn Burney. She lives in Paris. Lynn wrote a book called Once a Pilgrim, Always a Coach. It ended up being a book about her journey to the tomb of St. James in Spain with her husband, Richard. And of course, along the way, it became a book about coaching because how do you get from point A to point B and what do you do to keep your resolve up? Or when it rains, how do you avoid just giving it up altogether? Mm -hmm. And she ended up with about $20,000 in that book. And that included paying me to help her get it finished, paying an editor to really go through it at a professional level. And her mm -hmm. goal was to have the full experience. And then she hired a service out of Boulder, Colorado called KN Literary Arts. And they took her through all of the steps for design, all mm -hmm. of the steps for interior and exterior design, plus right. getting it loaded onto the self-publishing platforms like Amazon and Ingram Spark and all of the rest. Right. So by the time the whole thing was through and she did a launch party on the Seine in Paris, which I happened to go to, and she had a hundred people, she served quail legs. So she really went all My out goodness. and she's successful executive coach with an executive coaching school. It was all a business expense. Right. And she was very satisfied with that. She said, I now feel like I know what has to be done in order to make this happen. I think it's important that people know this is not some casual sort of thing that happens. It you shouldn't be. You can load up your PDF onto Ingram Spark or Amazon that you threw together yourself. And, you know, you can get that book in your hands in, in a week. You know, is it going to look professional if it's on the shelf? In your local bookstore, is it going to look like the professionally produced books around it, or is it going to stand out as amateurish? So yeah, absolutely. I think if people go the self-publishing route, they need to be prepared to make a significant investment, time, energy, and money. On that note, do you have any pieces you wrote that you could give us? I'll read a short poem from my latest book, which is a chapbook called Testament which was published earlier this year by Texas Review Press. Again, this is for my dad. The poem is called Hum. Though we were poor at touch as a family, my father would blow on my face to cool me in the heat of Louisiana summers, upstairs in church where he ran the soundboard. It was the sweetest shock, as if the Holy Ghost had swept straight through me, leaving my spine full of static. His breath hums in me still. So you were in church in Louisiana. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could feel the heat of the, of the weather there. Yeah, yeah. Do you have another poem you could read for us? Sure, sure. Um, I'll just stick with this collection, Testament, because I've got it pulled up here. I'll read the last poem in the book called My Name. It has an epigraph from Dennis Johnson, who's well-known as a fiction author. Uh, he wrote Jesus' Son, among other well-known books, but he was also a poet, times a remarkable poet. And this is a line from his poem, Now. Darkness, my name is Dennis Johnson. 
my name. Darkness, my name is Luke, and that means light, so it can't be near. You've banished it. Darkness, what is your name? You so envelop it within the folds of your being that I'll never reach it. You swallow me, but not deeply enough. My name is a pillar of fire I remember but cannot see. Darkness, swallow me, swallow me. I hear you are a gateway. Prove it. That's a big question to ask darkness, isn't it, Luke? It is. I will reveal one, one thing about the poem is it was partially inspired by the Tao Te Ching, darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. When you think about religion now, after having grown up down there in Louisiana, your father mm. running the soundboard, right. what do you do with it these days? What do you believe about the cosmos? So one of the wonderful things about me having <laughs> fallen away from my fundamentalist religious upbringing is that I can live with uncertainty now, whereas then, and I think in any fundamentalist environment, uncertainty is not really permissible. And the entire religious system is set up to get rid of uncertainty and to give you all the answers, right? So now I can approach the big questions. I can approach spirituality. Uh, I can approach the idea or the nature of God, all of these things. I can approach my own religious tradition, other religious traditions from a standpoint of curiosity, a standpoint of wonder a standpoint of, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> also, from a more literary standpoint, I can see these stories as metaphors and symbols, whereas when I was growing up, they were all literal. God created the earth in seven days, and Adam literally ate the apple. But now I can see these stories as profound mythologies, symbolic and poetic. So that's a little bit of how I approach spirituality now. And are you happy and satisfied with where you are with all of that? Much more so than I was when I was trying to hold on to what I thought were the answers, and it never really held together, and so I was always struggling with it. I was always living in fear of damnation. So yeah, I would much rather be where I am now. <laughs> and what have you carried forward from those experiences into how you see the world now? Well, there's undeniably a lush, beautiful poetry to the scriptures that I grew up with, the Christian Bible. That has been and will always be a deep influence on my relationship to language and um, the, the sound of poetry will always be influenced by those texts and by the hymns and, and all of that. So that's something positive I carry forward. So we're coming close to the time we have to say goodbye. So before we go, Give us a sense of where you're headed with all of the publishing work you're doing and how people could connect with you. And maybe if somebody wanted to submit some work, how would they do that? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. We have several submission opportunities from contests to open reading periods annually. 
And all of that information is on our website, which is orisonbooks.com, O-R-I-S-O-N books.com. We're also always seeking new readers for our books, of course. You can uh, you can order books on the website. We're also always uh, seeking donors and financial supporters. We are a nonprofit, and we depend on the support of donors to continue our unique and important mission and to continue bringing the beautiful books into the world that we've been doing for years now. Luke, thank you ever so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure, Nave. Anytime. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Luke Hankins of Orizon Books. As I said earlier, I connected with Luke at his fundraiser for Orizon Books in Asheville not too long ago. And at that event, he featured four poets reading their work. So what I would like to do now is read a poem from each of those poets, just to give you a sense of what the evening was like. So I'll start with Nicole Brown, follow with Sebastian Matthews, then Keith Flynn, and close with Ross Gay. This poem comes from Nicole Brown's book, To Those Who Were Our First Gods. Nicole focuses a great deal on animals, as you will see in this next poem, titled A Prayer to Talk to Animals. Lord, I ain't asking to be Beastmaster, Jim ripped in a jungle loincloth, or a Dr. Doodlittle, or even the expensive vet down the street, that stethoscoped redhead, her diamond ring big as a crackerjack toy. All I want is for you to help me flip off this light box and its scroll of dread, to rip a tiny tear between this world and that, a slit in the veil. Lord, one of those old-fashioned peeping keyholes through which I can press my dumb lips and speak. If you will, Lord, make me the teeth, hot in the mouth of a raccoon, scraping the junk I scraped from last night's plates. Make me the blue eyes of that young crow, cocked to me, too selfish to even look up from the flash of my damn phone. Oh, forgive me, Lord, how human I've become, busy clicking what I like, busy pushing my cuticles back and back to expose all ten pale, useless moons. Would you let me tell your creatures how sorry I am? Let them know exactly what I've done. Am I not an animal, too? If so, Lord, make me one again. Give me back my dirty claws and blood-warm horns. Braid back those long frayed strands of every nerve tingling with all I thought I had to do today. Fork my tongue, Lord. There is a sparrow on the air I taste but cannot name. I want to open my mouth and know the exact flavor of what's to come. I want to open my mouth and sound a language that calls all language home. And that was Nicole Brown's A Prayer to Talk to Animals. For the longest time, I didn't think it was possible for humans to talk to other animals. We are, after all, animals. We speak a certain language. Other animals communicate with different kinds of sounds. I now understand you can redefine talking to mean many, many things other than somebody understanding the words that you speak. Sometimes when you travel around in the world, you end up in countries that speak other languages. And somehow, even though you don't speak the same language, you can still often understand what somebody's trying to communicate by body language as well as the tone of the words that you don't understand because it's in a different language. 
And now let's turn to Sebastian Matthews and his book, Travelogue, A Photographic Journey, where he writes reflections based on black and white photos shot by Charter Weeks, who is a professional photographer who's been taking photographs for the last 60 years all over the world. Sebastian reflects on each photograph, speaks about it realistically, and then moves into imaginary circumstances about what Sebastian suspects might be going on in the photograph. I'm going to now read Sebastian's reflections on the photograph titled Drunks in Sun, Manhattan, 1967. And it starts with a quote from Charter Weeks. My first apartment in NYC was a six-floor walk-up shotgun apartment on 13th Street, just east of 3rd Avenue. In those days, it was the old Lower East Side with a lot of immigrants, drunks, hippies, artists, etc. The drunks used to hang out across from my building because it faced south with good solar gain. I shot this from my fire escape. As you can see, the guy is struggling to stand up. The chaise lounge was there for a long time because the city didn't pay much attention to this part of town. And now Sebastian reflects. Ask me, it's all about the void of doorway that the man seems to be stumbling toward, like a vampire trying to get out of the light. Indeed, you could say the shadow is an arrow pointing the way. The other guy seems to have figured out the whole sun conundrum. He's lying on his very own stretcher, basking in his dead-end state. And that was a poetic reflection on a photograph. Sebastian's a genius at doing this. In his book, Travelogue, A Photographic Journey, he deals with a hundred or more photographs with this kind of thinking. Today in New York, when you walk down 13th Street, just east of 3rd Avenue, today when you walk down 13th Street, just east of 3rd Avenue, you see a much cleaner environment than the 1967 Manhattan environment Charter Weeks captured in his photo, Drunks in Sun. The moments Charter Weeks captured in his photographs years ago bring the past into the present moment, which is the only place you can make art. Now let's turn to Keith Flynn, who was also on stage at the Horizon Books fundraiser. As Luke noted in our conversation, Keith publishes the Asheville Poetry Review. He's been doing that since 1994, a very long time. In addition to being a prolific poet, Keith is also a terrific singer-songwriter. He's traveled all over the world presenting his work to audiences large and small. Keith now lives close to where he was born in Madison County in a little area called Shelton Laurel. His house is a converted church he calls White Rock Hall. He makes music there, he records music, and he also lives there. So it's really quite a nice place sitting on a knoll overlooking the mountains that Keith is so familiar with. The poem I would like to read for you is titled The Skin of Meaning, which is the first poem in Keith's book that has the same title as the poem, The Skin of Meaning. Here we go. He was late for the party and without directions, though his invitation was secure and his instincts keenly honed to an acceptable edge. And as we are waiting to see if the fates will hear our ode to joy, we are given the sound of a man losing everything. This is the hissing of his agitation, the sound of his broken heart as it is given and fills with shards, a piece of stone in an overgrown garden, a stiff, bitter, lifelong secrecy tipping over a robust single indiscretion, and no one is witness to the villain 
shaved to a shadow in that moment, letting the sail of his love loose in a rippling wind, and that lost direction reducing his reflection to a splinter as he spends his summer cutting down the grass which grows right back, and when the colder weather comes to drive him down, he trims the fat of his summer words, and their loose darkness swims around his leather chair, the garden vines emptied of tone, their edges innuendo snarling, the hidden realities so carefully furrowed in shy smiles, and feigned deference which fastens his fading future slowly shot through with the wrinkles of original meaning that he has never outgrown. And that was Keith Flynn's Skin of Meaning. And now let's focus our attention on Sorrow Is Not My Name by Ross Gay. Ross Gay teaches at Indiana University, and Luke was one of his students when Luke was at Indiana University getting his MFA. And that's one of the reasons Ross came to Asheville to read for Luke's fundraiser. So keeping it in the family, if you know what I mean. Here is Ross Gay's poem, Sorrow Is Not My Name, which he dedicates to Gwendolyn Brooks. No matter the pool toward brink, no matter the florid, Deep sleep awaits. There is time for everything. Look, just this morning a vulture nodded his red, grizzled head at me, and I looked at him, admiring the sickle of his beak. Then the wind kicked up, and after arranging that good suit of feathers, he up and took off, just like that. And to boot, there are on this planet alone something like two million naturally occurring sweet things, some with names so generous as to kick the steel from my knees, agave, persimmon, stickball, the purple okra I bought for two bucks at the market. Think of that, the long night, the skeleton in the mirror, the man behind me on the bus taking notes, yeah, yeah, but look, my niece is running through a field calling my name. My neighbor sings like an angel, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember, my color's green. I'm spring. And that was Ross Gay's poem, Sorrow Is Not My Name. I love the optimism he brings to that piece. I'm spring, regeneration, coming back to life. It's a beautiful thing. And when Ross Gay read at Luke's fundraising, he was the last reader, he did bring a terrific sense of humor to the stage. And I just absolutely was inspired by his optimism. Ross can look at something that seems bleak and see beauty in the bleakness. And after that, he turns it into poetry that has beauty and yet does not forget the bleakness. I'm grateful that Ross Gay and other poets I know, like Nicole Brown, Sebastian Matthews, Keith Flynn, and Luke Hankins, are able to reflect on and remind us of all of those contrasts we know so well. And as we move toward the end of our time together, I'd like to offer you a couple of poems from my book, 100 Days Poems After Cancer. The first one is titled Atmosphere, followed by Velocity of the Breaching Stream. Here we go with Atmosphere. 
Along the lands of your air-sweeping dreams, the wind returns again and again from the wilds of the known through the distant trees, where shiny red hair mixes with bees, the clouds above and the earth below, along the rivers that always flow beyond where you're standing, past what seems will redeem your dreams when your breath floats high in the crow-wide sky. On this good day, travel alone with little thought for what you own. Walk with yourself through the perfumed sage, or go to the shore where the curlews play, and you can too for a moment or so, until the wind tells you it's time to go to who you are, to what you know, to where you soar, near or far, on the red-headed wind in your sky of bees. Now let's come down from the sky of bees to the velocity of the breaching stream. This piece opens in New York City. Not satisfied yesterday with our conversation about how to release a large trout into a fast-moving Colorado stream, my friend Paul called again today. With my mobile to my ear, I went down six flights of stairs, crossed the lobby, and stepped out onto the sidewalk behind a couple walking west on 29th Street. Paul said, With wet hands, I took him to the shallows. I held him gently in the easy flow. I moved him back and forth, nose to tail until three bubbles of air emerged and he regained his strength until finally, as if he were my own child, I released him. The couple turned south down Third Avenue holding hands, talking about theater and what they planned to do later. You know, in any big city, you can fall out of the sky and splash into the river and nobody will notice you. Who wants that? Everybody knows there's juice in giving yourself over to your swagger, your electricity, your cool, your sword-swallowing, fire-breathing days under the big top where trapeze artists soar. Wet your hands. Take yourself to the shallows. Lure yourself gently in the easy flow. Move yourself back and forth, head to toe until three bubbles of air emerge and you regain your strength until finally, as if you were your own child, release yourself back into the unreachable depths and velocity of the breaching stream. Those two poems come from my book, 100 Days, Poems After Cancer, published by 3A House Press in Denver. And before we go, I'd like to give you one more piece of poetry to take you out. Since we're in the holiday season, December 2023, I'm going to offer you a bit of A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. I love this piece. It's a holiday poem for sure. I recite it sometimes in the middle of the summer. So here's just a sample of A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. I'll set the scene. It's Christmas morning. A man is remembering his childhood in Wales. He's remembering when he finished his Christmas breakfast and went out on the town to see what was going on. One note, a sugar fag is a candy cigarette. On Christmas morning, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would go out to scour the swathed town for news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the white post office or the deserted swings, perhaps a robin, all but one of his fires out. Men and women waiting or scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-bust cheeks, all albinos, would huddle their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snows. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all of the front parlors. 
There was walnuts and sherry and bottled beer and crackers by the dessert spoons and cats in their furabouts watched the fires and the high heat fires spat all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers. Some few large men, uncles almost certainly, sat in the front parlors trying their new cigars, holding them judiciously out at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, and then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion. Some few small aunts, not wanted in the kitchen or anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man, fawn-bowlered and yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back, as he would take it wet or fine on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men, their big pipes blazing, no overcoats, and wind-blown scarves would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I'd be slap-dashing home, the gravy smell of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mints curling up to my nostrils, when out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy, the spit of myself, with a pink-tipped cigarette, and the violet past of a black eye, leering all to himself, cocky as a bullfinch, I hated him on sight and sound, and I would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas, when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips, and he blew so high, so stridently, so exquisitely loud, that gobbling faces, their cheeks bulged with goose, pressed against the tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street. And that, my friends, was an excerpt from A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. If you happen to be in Taos on Sunday, December the 3rd, I'll be performing A Child's Christmas in Wales, 1.30 to 2.30 at Somos Literary Center, which is in downtown Taos. You can find the information on my website, jamesnave.com. I memorized A Child's Christmas in Wales in 1987 and have performed it every Christmas season since. If somebody asked me on the street to stop and spend 23 minutes giving them A Child's Christmas in Wales as a gift, I'm happy to do it. And like I said a few moments ago, sometimes I'll perform the entire piece in the middle of the summertime just because I love the language. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. Orizon Books, if you're interested in publishing, Nicole Brown, Sebastian Matthews, Keith Flynn, Ross Gay, wonderful poets. You can Google them all and find more of their work online. So on that note, once again, thank you for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. 
Walter Parks provided us with our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial in Asheville for managing WPVMFM, and Robin Collier in Taos for managing KCEI. I appreciate it. And I'd like to remind you, we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com. I also host a free writing workshop every Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time. So if you'd like to improve your writing and join a community of writers, we would love to have you. It only lasts an hour and 15 minutes, and it is good fun. You can find that link at imaginativestorm.com. So there it is, my friends. One more Twice Five Miles radio show under the bridge. Thank you ever so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And hey, I hope you tune in again sometime soon. Until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.